17 years ago, I had a meeting with a gentleman named Rusty Keeley, and I shared with him that I did not know if I had what it took to become a motivational speaker, to build this business, to touch lives around St. Louis, around Missouri, maybe even as far as Illinois. And he challenged me to believe in myself, to cast a vision for impacting lives, not only in our own backyard, but around the world. Since that time, we've had the opportunity and the honor of partnering with more than 2,000 clients in 50 states, a couple dozen countries, a couple million people. We've released now a couple, that's two, number one national best-selling books and have this remarkable podcast. Thank you for listening to it. Because of Rusty's vision, because of his belief, because of his challenge for me to imagine this impact and to pursue it diligently. It has impacted my life, and not only that, but Rusty is a sponsor today of this podcast. Keeley Companies now does more than $500 million in annual revenue through construction and infrastructure technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. It's their world-class, people-first mentality that makes the biggest impact. I've seen this firsthand in my life. The team, the Keeleyans now feel in their lives and those that are benefiting from Rusty and the Keeley work experience it in their lives. If you want to learn more about Rusty Keeley and that business, I encourage you to check out KeeleyCompanies.com. KeeleyCompanies.com or better yet, why not listen to the Live Inspired podcast where I celebrate our relationship. Check it out. It's episode 296. You'll experience there an in-depth conversation with my friend, the CEO of Keeley Companies. His name is Rusty Keeley. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I want to begin this one with sharing two quotes that are going to be offered up here in a moment by our guest today. They're deeply meaningful when I heard them the first time, and even more so when you think about this gentleman's story, about his life, and about what his life means to you in your life going forward. Here are the two quotes. Be careful about the labels you assign to people and the judgments that you make about them. And then Steve goes on to say, if the most important thing I can think I know about you is your label, I miss this deeper, richer narrative about who you really are. Well, my friends, research suggests that our experiences in childhood, the adversity we face, and the family that we call our support system will have a profound impact on the overall well-being and the trajectory of our lives going forward. Well, that's true. But our guest today was never acknowledged by his father, and he was abandoned by his mother at age three. Steve Pemberton spent the majority of his childhood being shuffled through the foster care system where he was abused, he was neglected, he was starved, he was forgotten. And yet, this boy who had not a chance in the world at surviving these days and during that pain 
goes on to become a wildly successful human being. How is that possible? How's that possible? And what does it mean for you and your journey forward in life? Well, for Steve, his faith played a massive role in the journey forward. His resiliency and grit played a massive role. His vision for tomorrow played a massive role. But what he recognized is that individuals who would show up for him right on time, he refers to them as lighthouses, are the reason why he was able to not only survive childhood, but go on to become a profoundly successful human being in life. He is recognized as a best-selling author of a book many of you have read called A Chance in the World. He's a trailblazing human resource executive that champions leaders to build workplaces where every employee feels recognized, they are respected, and they are appreciated for who they are and for what they do. You're going to hear a conversation here shortly with sensitivity, honesty, and hope. Today's conversation with Steve Pemberton will remind you that we are all in a position to create opportunities for others simply by being a beacon of hope for them. Be careful about the labels you assign to people and the judgments that you make. Because if the most important thing I can think I know about you is your label, I miss the deeper, richer narrative of who you actually are. My friends, you're going to hear who Steve actually is here in a moment, but I think in this conversation, you're going to be reminded of who you actually are and the limitless possibility of your life to be a change agent for good, a lighthouse for good in a marketplace that is longing for it. What I encourage you to do right now is to open up your heart, grab a journal, maybe something to take some notes with, you'll need it, as I introduce you to my friend and now yours, his name is Steve Pemberton. Steve, brother, friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. Great to, great to be with you. Well, it's great to have a, a friend uh, on the couch and someone that I, for a long time, have looked up to. You, you're also one of the busiest guys I've ever read about, ever heard speak, ever met. I'm curious, when you meet someone, Steve, and they say, hey, uh, I'm John, I, you know, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home father, or I work in a bank, I'm a nurse. What do you do, Steve? How do you respond to that question? What do you do, Steve? I've learned to kind of describe what I do as someone who comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. It, it, it depends on which uh, one of those two things I do in any given day. I'd say as I get a little bit older, it's more comforting the afflicted. Technically, uh, if we met at a, you know, at a conference or some other gathering, I would tell you that I run global human resources for a company called Work Human. I am also uh, an author of uh, A Chance in the World, both the adult version and, and now a young reader version. And then my upcoming book, uh, The Lighthouse Effect, which will be out in the fall of 21. And, and, and somehow you moonlight as a husband, as a father of three, as a sojourner in the world. So uh, yeah. let's talk about the, the origin story. Yeah, everybody's got a story and it's frequently not the, the story we think of them. So when we see oh. you, we see this remarkably successful, well put together fellow, and yet we might miss the story that led in some regards perfectly up to the heart that you mm -hmm. are leading forward with today. Would you just share with our audience your backstory? Well, in, in some ways, you know, the story is a reflection of what the story looks like. And what I mean by that is uh, that about 10 years ago, in the middle of a busy life, as I think we all are, we're overscheduled, hyperscheduled generation. And uh, one of my morning rituals um, was with my then um, six-year-old son, our oldest son, Quinn. 
And uh, he always had a morning ritual, which was, uh, especially on the weekends, he'd come padding down the hall. He'd have his favorite book with him, The Lion and the Mouse, and we would read his favorite book. And he always had questions for me, John, just fascinated me what this young mind uh, was thinking about. And those of us who know the story know, you know, that the mouse chews through the net to save the lion. And he, he just loved that. Something as small as a mouse could save something as big as a lion. And he also loved the fact that his dad could imitate the voice of a lion really well. Uh, and the mouse? Uh, now and then. <laughs> I think he, he really gravitated to the roar of the lion. <laughs> I was always fascinated by his questions. And one morning he wheels around on my lap and I can tell from his expression, he has a question. And it is indeed a question, but it is not about the story of the lion and the mouse. It's about my story. And the way he asks this is he says, uh, so daddy, when you were a little boy, did you have a daddy? And I remember being so caught off guard by that question. And it occurred to me, he had seen mommy's mommy and he had seen mommy's daddy, but he hadn't seen mine. Uh, and I had not talked about it in large part because I thought that that conversation would come later on. But here it was with a six-year-old. Uh, one question led to another question. And I realized that this family history, I had to get down for him uh, and for his younger brother, Vaughn, and their sister, younger sister, Kennedy. And I had to do, and I had to do that because my answer to his question was an honest answer, which was no, I did not have a mother or father. And it baffled him because he had never seen a world or known a world himself where there wasn't a mother and father. And so I had to explain that for him, knowing full well that it would take on deeper meaning as the three children got older. You answered my question by making us even hungrier for the answer to it. Like, so your origin story involves you not having a mother or a father. Like, it's just a, it's a great way to begin this conversation together as you hold your son on his lap, reading him that book decades later, you know, who, who could have imagined, who could have imagined. And yet it's, it's part of your story, Steve. So you don't really have a mother because at age three, you were taken away from her. Would you, would you talk about the mother you, you did know? It's actually is implied in the title, um, uh, a chance in the world, which was actually not a colloquial phrase. It was a prediction that was said of me when I was about one and a half years old, that because my mother was in the midst of a losing battle with alcoholism, that I wasn't going to have a chance, that the deficit was just too great that I had been born into. About a year after that prediction was made, I was taken from her a couple of weeks before Christmas when I was three years old. Uh, and I was to never see her again, too young to remember her. And certainly no idea of uh, a father at all. Unfortunately, what happens um, is that I move through the foster care system, multiple homes, none of them good. And then I land in a particularly cruel one where I stay for over 11 years. And in that house, I'm waging this dual battle. One is just to be safe uh, because they are uh, a terribly abusive family. And so I'm trying to fend them off um, every day. And at the same time, I'm trying to solve this mystery of my identity. Who do I look like? Where have I come from? And most importantly, when are my mother and father coming back to get me? I didn't get those answers until my early 20s after I graduated from college. Um, uh, but back then, there was no bigger question uh, on, on my mind than that idea of family. Who was my family and where were they? You write, and I've heard you say it a couple of times in various interviews and podcasts and speeches that you had light skin. 
you had blue eyes, yes, you had a, a, a big afro, and you had a Polish last name, and you're in the foster care system. So you have some confusion around where you came from. Would you describe for us your mother's family of origin and then your father's? Although, again, none of this I knew at the time. My mother was Irish and English, and she had long, you know, blonde hair and brown eyes, and she was white, of course. My father, again, I would come to learn this later, was African-American, uh, West Indian, Portuguese, and Cape Verdean. The two of them uh, had a relationship, a passing relationship. I was a product of it. Uh, I was never acknowledged by my father. Uh, and my mother, because of her battle with alcoholism, she uh, would not reveal his identity to anyone. So looking as I did, you know, I'm a collision of labels. So I'm a biracial boy, though the world sees me largely as African-American. I have blue eyes, which come from my father's African roots and Cape Verdean Portuguese culture. A Polish last name of Klakowicz, which was the name of my mother's only husband, uh, and this big blonde afro. So, John, as soon as people would see me, they would go, like, what are you? And I can't tell you the number of times I thought, well, I don't know. It maybe you can help me was what I was thinking. I saw the picture of you. I think it was from age seven, maybe. And you're just a handsome little guy. And you've got joy on your cheeks. You can see it in the cheeks. You can see it in the eyes. And two things really strike me about that picture. The, the first is, I believe it's only two. There are only two surviving pictures from your childhood. There, there's a picture of pictures of me from my childhood and, and for the majority of our listeners. Like it's, it's well photographed. And yet for you, it, it was not because the supporting loving structure wasn't there to, to capture those moments. That's mm -hmm. one piece. So the, this idea of how we can misinterpret the image right in front of us. And then the second is you appear as so pleasant and so happy and so at peace. Mm -hmm. Yet your life was anything other than those things. Mm -hmm. how, how do you begin as a young boy to work your way through that conflict? Yeah, I found sanctuaries. And uh, my sanctuaries uh, were being alone, actually. I, I liked being in my own company. And I loved reading in particular. So reading was, a, in many ways, an expression of the first, that I could be in my own world and nobody would interfere in that world. Uh, and so for me, uh, it was a respite. It, it made me a great student. It made me the spelling bee champ, John, in my elementary school, which was pretty important to me uh, at the time, a sense of victory. But it also gave me a vision of a world that was different than the one that I was living in. And uh, so I, I read mysteries in particular because I love mysteries. And I wanted to be a detective when I got older so I could find out where my birth family was. Uh, but along the way, it gave me this quite literally a lighthouse that I kept sailing my life towards. Uh, and that was intact families and kind and caring um, uh, parents. Um, and ultimately, this ridiculous idea that somehow I could change the arc of whatever this was that I had inherited. Uh, but, you know, at times it was certainly very lonely because I wasn't always understood and I did not have the language to articulate what I was dealing with. And even the times that I dared venture forth. I was not believed or adults did not see. Uh, and so something that could have been avoided actually escalated as a result. It might be darkness in the evening, but joy, joy comes in the morning. I will also tell you, I met some very magical people along the way who unbeknownst to them were quite literally lighthouses for me, although they didn't know it at the time. Kind neighbor who brought me books. 
uh, a director of a college uh, access program called Upward Bound, uh, a high school teacher who took me in. I still remember uh, the knowing glances of Mr. Mead, the mailman who delivered mail to the neighborhood and would see me reading on this rock wall and he would smile and nod at me. Uh, and on occasion he would say, keep reading young man, it's really important. Mm. Uh, in the foster home one time, uh, there was a construction crew that was working on the house. And uh, boy, they, they made it abundantly clear to me that um, I was not a young boy of circumstance, but a young boy of possibility. That's what lighthouses do, right? Uh, tell me what you mean by that. How did they make it abundantly clear to you that you were not a victim to these circumstances? There was a common thread between the people who knowingly and unknowingly intervened. It was on the one hand, they recognized the circumstance that I was, that I was in. Um, and even if they couldn't pull me out of the foster home, for, for example, what they tried to pour into me was an encouragement about what my future could actually be if I kept reading as much as I did, if I uh, remained a strong student as I was. I put a lot of my faith in what they said. Actually, my hope, my optimism came from the things that they said and shared with me. And those messages came from my elementary school. Yeah. You know, it's a message that you receive too, right? Keep fighting. That was their version of keep fighting. And I know it appears like this is an impossible situation, but you keep fighting. Now, every day, uh, as was the case for you, not every day was a victory at the end of the day, but the fight was there. Mm. So that to me was the real goal was to fight every day. The, the outcome didn't matter so much, actually. It was the fight. And if you fought every day, you battled every day. Uh, then over time, the victories would come, and they did. Steve, you, you spend 13 or so years in and out of foster care. You spent 11 with one unusually cruel set of foster parents, starved you and abused you and beat you and belittled you and did their very best to <laughs> take all hope away from you. You can go into as much or as little of the details as you'd like, but would you just describe an experience or two that might put a little bit of color around what life was like for you in this house? It's, it's hard to digest because none of us can imagine that kind of violence being enacted upon a child. But that's uh, the way that these people were. And even now, time has not allowed me to understand that kind of mindset that strikes a, a, a child, sends a child to a hospital with uh, mysterious bruises and things far worse than that. After a while, John, to be honest, the physical pain, I steeled myself against. Right. It was more the fear, actually, the, the anguish, in, in, in particular, the uncertainty. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to describe what it's like as a child to wake up wondering, well, is today the day that I'm going to die? Because nobody really cares about me. And I feel that I, I really, though I didn't know the phrase at the time, a chance in the world, you know, if anything happened, who, who would I talk to? What would I say? Growing up as children, we become very... Uh, aware of, of boogeymen and monsters and, you know, beings that hide under your bed. But those were not in my imagination. These were real people, actually. And they behaved a lot like the boogeymen of our childhood uh, actually, actually did. And, and um, lastly, I would say about them, their ability to anticipate the kind and caring and benevolent souls that might try to help you know, their ability to paint this picture of me as a broken boy who had some problems and they were doing the best they could uh, was extraordinary. Uh, the guile, the deceit, the feral and instinct, the manipulation 
of nurses, doctors, teachers, social workers get away with it for, 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 for so long. I was truly up against an evil force and I knew it at the time. Did you ever raise your hand and, and whisper into a teacher's ear or a pastor or a counselor or a nurse? I know there were several nurses from St. Luke's that um, saw you. They, they, uh, they learned to love you. But did you ever explain to them what was going on at home? One of the, the tactics that this family used was to tell me, and this was true, we win a lot of awards for taking in foster children. So if you ever say anything to anyone about what's really happening here, we're going to know. And number two, nobody's gonna believe you anyway. And you know, that was quite a message, you know, to get. So what I would do, John, is I would size you up and I would try to figure out the answer to the most pressing question of my childhood, which was, would you be able to see through the veneer and the facade of the story they're telling without me having to say a word? Again, because they always, as the foster family always preyed upon the eminent goodness in people. It was really hard to see. And even those who got close, they reacted in a very visceral kind of way. You know, they kind of knew if you started asking probing questions, um, why do you say Steve has so many problems, but he's a fantastic student? Uh, they, they knew that you were kind of getting close to the truth. And so they would force social workers off my case. They would call the principal of the elementary school and uh, make it clear that they were that my teachers were asking too many probing questions, uh, and that was to stop immediately. You know those memories uh, I uh, I remember quite vividly. Steve, what what became of this foster family? The day that I left, I was 15 years old. It was a conversation I had with my social worker. You know, he asked me if I wanted to file uh, charges against them. And, you know, reading as much as I did, I knew I was going to be in a courtroom and I didn't want that. I just, I wanted to get to college, John, really. And I didn't want to be in a courtroom and I did not have a lot of trust in systems because they had failed me. And so I said, no, I don't want to press charges. I said, but you have to make sure that they can never take in another foster child. They'd taken in 39. I was 39. Uh, and I was the last one, which was the assurance that I got that there would never be another child who would walk through the front doors of that home. Um, and so that is uh, exactly what happened. And then I think, you know, beyond that, especially after the book, you know, came out, I mean, people, though I changed their last name, I mean, people knew exactly who they were. I wrote about their Robinson rules as well, which were really intended to, to uh, control me. I couldn't be seen reading in their presence. I was not to call them mom or dad. I couldn't open the refrigerator without permission. I mean, it was a form of beyond indentured servitude. And I, I get kind of a, a smile here uh, out of breaking one of their rules as it was, which was to tell no one about uh, what was happening. And now I would say that, well, people all over the world now know exactly what was happening. One of the things, Stephen, in reading your story and the tender heart that it it delivers on the page and in your voice even still, is that the path that seems most natural for you to venture down forward would have been the path of anger, turning toward the street, turning toward violence, leaning into a gang and becoming another statistic. And yet here you are, this Boston College trained professional who's out there changing the world one life at a time, seemingly at least working to leave the anger and the sadness. You know, it's part of the story always but it's not the thing that motivates you today. 
can you help me understand how you were able to do that at age 15 when you first leave and then 16 and 17 and 18 and moving forward into life? For any of us who have encountered great loss or great struggle or pain, that's not, that's not our fault. I think it forces upon us a question, which is how are we going to pivot? How are we going to redirect that into what end specifically? And even more specific questions, how long is that going to take you? Some people spend a lifetime mired in the circumstance and the possibility which is available to them is still harder for them to get to. I think because I read as much as I did, it really gave me an alternate vision than the one that had inherited, the one that I had come into the world with. And once I saw that lighthouse, it was really hard for me to unsee it. The people who touched me affirmed that in a lot of ways. It didn't mean that I was not angry. In fact, I had quite a temper when I was younger because I, I felt so much had been taken from me. My mother, my father, any sense of family, my last name had been taken from me too. Answers had been taken from me. Everything that could ever matter to a young person was gone. That did leave me angry. But that anger and the ability to direct that anger now into something productive uh, became healing at the same time. And it's still healing, in all honesty. You keep using the term lighthouse. And I love, I love, first, I love physical lighthouses. They're gorgeous. You see a lot of them on the East Coast. But I really love the idea of being a lighthouse and uh, of seeking lighthouses in a, in a marketplace that has so much darkness. John Sykes, you know, we, we got a lot of teachers who tune into the Live Inspired podcast. So this is a shout out to all my brothers and sisters out there in the labor force who are guiding forward our youth. But John Sykes is one of your leaders within school. Talk about John and his influence on your life. John Sykes was a teacher and counselor in the Upward Bound program. The Foster family tried to pull me out of the program, and John was the one who the director, Ruby Dotton, said, talk with Steve. Apparently, he's causing a lot of problems in his foster home. Talk with him and find out what, what's going on. And John, that program was so important for me. Uh, it was literally uh, my chance in the world, my, my chance to get to college. And so I meet with John, and I realize it's kind of silent. I hope they'll figure it out approach that I had taken my whole life was not going to be sufficient here. And while I didn't go into great detail with John, I said, whatever you do, you can't pull me out of the program. That home is not what it appears to be. I need to stay here in the program. And I, John, I'm trying to tell you, I was trying to summon everything in my spirit because I knew what was going to happen to me if I lost that sanctuary. Well, I'm in his, I'm in his office with another counselor. I'm convincing both of them. And he, at the end of that conversation, says, I'm going to recommend to Ruby that you stay in the program. I walked out of his office and I was so relieved that I put my back against the wall, took a deep breath, and I just kind of slid down to the bottom of that wall. He did not realize that I was still within earshot. Mm. And I overheard him say to the to the other counsel, never had a conversation like that. And then he says, I don't have any children, but if I did... I sure do wish that they were a lot like him. Two years after that, I'm seated across from my social worker. I have nowhere to go. I've been in my social worker office all day. He's trying to find a family to take me in. I have no way of knowing that I'm the most difficult kind of case to place. Uh, I'm a teenager. I'm black. I'm male. It's the middle of the holidays. I'm the hardest kind of kid to place at any time of the year, let alone the holidays. And at one point in that conversation, Late in the afternoon, my, my social worker says, Steve, I'm, I'm out of people to call. Do you know anybody? The only person I could think of was John Sykes. 
largely because of what I heard him say. And I relayed that to my social worker who calls the Upward Bound office. John happened to be there in the office during school vacation and says, yes, Steve can come stay with me for the week between Christmas and New Year's. And my social worker says, well, we're gonna work on more permanent placement, which they never were able to do. So I wound up staying uh, with John for my last year of high school. John uh, was an extraordinary, extraordinary man. I lost him in January in his loss. I still feel it. I just think about what that must have been like for him. You know, he's in the middle of, of you know, his life. He was a bachelor and living a bachelor life. And he gets this call saying, hey, you know, this young boy's out of options. Will you help him? Now, over the years, I often asked John about that conversation, and he, he said, I, I knew uh, immediately that this was a higher power asking me to say yes, and, and so I did, uh, and it quite literally changed, changed everything. John and I are as different as two people could be, you know, <laughs> you know, he loved to ride Harley Davidson and loved boats in the sea, and, uh, and I'm a city kid, you know, and but boy, was he an incredibly, incredibly special man. So much so that he's the first person that I'm, I'm writing about in, in the, the Lighthouse Effect. We could spend at least the next hour unpacking John and the lighthouses that say yes mm-hmm. in a marketplace that usually says no or, or doesn't even answer no. the phone. I think near the end of our conversation, I want to talk more about foster care and loving kids and making a difference and showing up and trying to make a difference in, a, in, in this time where that impact is so desperately needed. So why don't, why don't we come back to that? As we put on your, your cap and gown, we graduate high school. I know you go on to Boston College. I had a couple of friends that went on to BC from St. Louis, grade school. Why'd you choose Boston College? Larry Finnerty, my seventh grade guidance counselor, handed me a brochure and said, uh, this would be a great place for you to go to school. Uh, I didn't even know what college was, let alone Boston College. But I had my sights set on Boston College. Uh, and then the more I learned about it, and specifically the way that the Jesuits educate you uh, with this idea that you have a greater responsibility to the world, that you are uh, to be, in my case, a man for others. Uh, and uh, that was instilled in me, you know, very early on that I had a responsibility, actually. I had, I had come through a turbulent experience, yes. Uh, but I managed to get to, you know, this hallowed ground that is, uh, that is Boston College. Uh, and uh, things come full circle, you know, because uh, my son is now a sophomore at Boston College. Uh, he's in the School of Management and he plays basketball. And uh, I, I don't even have the vocabulary to express what it feels like to see that young man walking the place that I did uh, and doing so differently than I did. I, so I'm going to ask you this question kind of out of the blue, but Steve, it hits me right now. When I stepped onto St. Louis University, which is, uh, a, you know, it's a Jesuit school here in Missouri. Yeah. I, I felt like I did not really belong academically, societally, mm. physically. My hands were different. I walked with a limp. I never dated anybody. Like, did I belong here at all? I, mm, I don't know. Yeah. So that was... That was my underlying limiting belief stepping on at age 18 as a white, privileged, lucky, blessed, awesome family kid from his own backyard. I didn't really belong here. I'm curious, man, the first day at Boston College, coming through what you've been through in your childhood, 
and the various experiences and so many of them painful. What was it like for you stepping onto Boston College campus as an 18 year old boy? I had the same feelings that you did stepping on campus at uh, St. Louis University. Uh, beautiful Gothic architecture and buildings and just uh, what college supposed to be like. You don't look, you look around, you don't see a lot of people who look like you. You don't see anybody who comes from the life journey that, that you've come from. And so freshman year in particular was very difficult uh, because people come with preconceived ideas and notions about a whole lot of things whether that be uh, race or city kids or whatever the expectation was. So there are a lot of those social collisions. I'm not a drinker, uh, so I didn't participate in that. It was a lonely time uh, in, in, in some ways. But I think the nature of um, Jesuit schools is that ultimately they say to you, you belong here. This place is a place for you too. Uh, and ultimately, although it took me a little while, uh, I found that niche as, as, as it were. And then as you get a little bit older, you're really affirmed and reminded just how important you know, that, that is. It, and it probably is no accident that you and I have been on kind of like mission-centered careers in different ways that our lives primarily, particularly our adversities, uh, are about impacting people, which is really what you know, the Jesuits talk about a lot, that it's not enough to hope. And I get hope's power, right? I get, I get hope's universality. I get that it calls us to higher angels. I get all of that. But ultimately what the Jesuits say, well, that's nice, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> Let's talk about that, man. Hope has led you forward. Lighthouses have shown you the way. People have shown up for you just on time, right when you needed them. And one person by one person by one person changed your life. And the arc within that life led you into college. What was your hope graduating college? And my hope graduating college was that I was going to find my biological family. And it hit me graduation day. You remember your graduation day. Uh, you remember all the pomp and circumstance, the pageantry, your family's there, your name's called, uh, and there's the clapping and the stomping and the celebration. My graduation day was not like that. Woke up in my dorm room, put on my cap and gown, and I am so excited and I'm so happy. And as I'm walking across the campus, I realize I am alone here. There is no family. That is quickly followed by the fact that Boston College has been my home these last four years. It's the only time in my life where I knew I was going to be the next four years. And I have to leave this place, and I don't want to leave this place. The pivot that we talked about earlier it sent me on a mission. Where's my family? Uh, and that's when I, I, I actually located my biological family through really, uh, I detail it in the, in the book, but a miracle upon miracle upon miracle. Yeah. So I wound up changing my last name to Pemberton when I learned the identity of my biological father, uh, a name that my children uh, walk through the world with, which gives me great joy. When you reconnect with your father's family who had no idea that you existed, how was that greeting? I would say that I've never seen a ghost, but I know what it's like for people to think that you're a ghost, John, because that was their reaction to meeting me for the first time. My father did not tell anyone of my existence. He had passed away 20 odd years before. I did not realize it, but I looked a lot like him, a lighter version of him, carry a lot of his mannerisms, don't know that either. And these people who are complete strangers to me, and I can see the resentment, like, wow, I look like these people. Yeah. But to a person, when I'm meeting the family, I, they're, they're all, they immediately start crying because they see their brother oh, man. Uh, uh, in, in, in particular. And so the Murphy family, my mother's family, they knew of my existence, but didn't know what happened to me. 
Uh, so when I come, it was like playing a time traveler, right? You come stomping back through time saying, hey, I'm one of you. I'm one of you. you know, although a movie has been made about my life, it's not a Hollywood movie because life's not quite like that, right? But, you know, it's still family, though. It's not perfect because no family's perfect. Uh, but I tell you this much, it beats not knowing. I was so moved when I, I think you wrote about it in, in the book, uh, A Chance in the World, about your grandpa Murphy growing mm. up also in orphan. Great grandma and great grandpa both passed away. He was a member of the greatest generation and an extraordinary man who I never, I did not meet him. He passed away the year before I found the family. But when uh, I, I learned his story uh, and what an extraordinary story it was, he actually grows up in Philadelphia and loses his parents to a pandemic, the pandemic of 1918 that wiped out uh, almost 30, 40% of Philadelphia. He loses his, uh, his parents and he goes, and so he's orphaned and he goes off into foster care, foster homes. He's raised by a family member, but the stepmother did not like him, did not want him. He navigates all of that somehow, goes on to serve America in World War II, is at Normandy specifically, leaves a wife and two young daughters behind to do so, is wounded multiple times, comes back from war, almost certainly suffering from PTSD, which there was no help at the time, learns that his wife is clearly in the midst of a mental health struggle, which for which his daughters have paid a price, one of them being my mother. Uh, winds up becoming a technical writer for NASA. You know, he's one of those people that though I didn't meet him, you kind of look at him like, you know, you're from a different planet. You're from this elevated species uh, that lives on another planet. You've just come to Earth to hang out with us for a little bit. And I feel that way about a lot of members of the greatest generation. I mean, these extraordinary, extraordinary people. I'd like to think that he's proud of his grandson. Uh, and I'd also tell you one of the most important lessons I learned from my grandfather Again, though I did not meet him, but his life informs mine. Be careful about the labels that you assign to people and the judgments that you make, because though my challenge and struggle was hard and very difficult, my grandfather, though he and I are different races and generations, he would have understood my struggle because that was his struggle. And let's talk about labels. In order to understand a problem, you must identify the cause and the specific individuals who are affected by it. So it's important to sometimes label things. I mean, it's really critical in some regards. Why are you so anti-labels? I know what it costs you. For me, the label that was applied to me, not a chance in the world, was a reflection ultimately what happened to me. I remember this conversation when I was a young boy and a social worker saying, when I asked her, why is it so hard to find me a home? And she said, it's because we don't know if you belong with a white family or black family. Joanna had no idea what she was talking about. I was seven years old. In fact, as near as I could surmise, she was talking about what color the house that I would go live in was, was painted. That's how I conceptualized it. And I remember asking, well, why does it matter if it's black or white or orange or pink or purple? Like, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? In some ways, I still think that way. I think when you peel back the label and we come to understand the commonality of our experiences that are anchored in stories of family and faith and fortitude and forgiveness, that, that's far away from the label, these physical things that we see. If the most important thing I think I can know about you is your label, or if I think the thing that tells me the most about you is your label, are you black or white, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, your faith expression, 
I miss this deeper, richer narrative. So you and I are different races and grew up in different places. And if the world is always going to gravitate to the differences between you and I, as opposed to this commonalities that we have, you and I could regale your audience with stories of overcoming, of being fathers, of being educated by the Jesuits uh, as a first love of baseball. Think about what's below the waterline that's beyond the label. So much of the dissonance in the world is totally. because we are focused on the things that we think tells us somebody's story. And it does not mean that we don't have differences. There's nothing wrong with those differences, but what we learn is that the differences are not the denominator of our lives. They're the numerator. The denominator of these bigger parts are these universal stories of family and forgiveness and love and loss and hope and dreams. You navigate this world, you breathe this air, you live this life. Those are walks that we all take. Brother, when are you running? Like, Because I'm in line and I'm ready to cast a vote because what, what you're talking about, candidly, is seldom shared through social mainstream media. It doesn't seem like this idea of the denominator versus the numerator is a, a commonly articulated message. So I am curious, it's sincerely, how do we begin living that truth? Mm. It, it, it is for our generation, uh, it's our question. It's the greatest question that our generation has to answer. Generations before us answered their own questions on, on matters of civil rights, uh, on matters of avoiding nuclear war and ending fascism. And uh, every generation has questions to answer. Our generation's question to answer is exactly the one that you pose. How do we find a more common story? How, how, how do we look beyond the worlds that are cleverly leveraged to divide and, and separate us? Uh, and I think the answer actually lies um, in the people that are all around us every day. Um, and it is really to be found uh, in the everyday people, as it were, uh, the teachers, uh, the nurses, the first responders. We've seen how important those people are. Um, because in those people are principles and lessons um, and narratives that inform and advise us, that allows us to see beyond this kind of toxic culture where we rush to judgment uh, because uh, of where someone is. And in the world of really breaking news and uh, uh, immediate judgment, clicking, tweeting, yes. sharing. Well, now, now, John, in all honesty, we see what happens to a nation when we stop pursuing the idea that we have a common story, are we to become a nation of a million different clans with no commonality, no, no common cause? Societies like that historically have never been sustainable because they, they collapse upon each other and democracies are not immune to that. Uh, they're not immune to it. In fact, they might be the ones who are most susceptible to it. Uh, and yet I do think that America in particular, we, we, it may take us a long time to get to some places, but we we know when we've kind of gone too far. And so we are a society of correction. I believe that firmly. Uh, but I do think that that correction requires us to take stands uh, to understand that we are not enemies. Uh, we have differences, of course, but the founding fathers kind of understood that too. You know, they wove differences as well as a spirit of compromise into the founding documents. 
they, they anticipated this in, in some degree. They didn't get it all right, but they kind of understood that you, you could not have a, a society that was built towards dissonance because ultimately it would, it would destroy itself. We'll bring you back and have a whole conversation around specifically that. And, and I've heard you speak before on the American dream mm. uh, and the origin story of where that term came from. And yes, what yes. Yeah. And I'm being serious. I would love to have you back on just to talk about the dream and how we can continually cast it going forward and pursue it, not only for ourselves, but for those we are called to serve. One of the things, Steve, that, that moved me most out of anything about your story, and you probably don't know this, is but as I was getting ready to buy it online, and there was a review on your book, five stars, by the way, so congratulations from that reviewer. He bought your book in getting ready for a meeting with you, this kid. He was a senior in high school. And he said, I was going to meet with Steve because I'm considering going to Boston College. I'm an inner city black kid. And uh, I was late for our meeting. And yet Mr. Steve stuck around. Great man, great book. So I read that, that I'm like, man, this is the kind of guy I, I want to read, I want to learn from, and I want to become a friend with. So I'm, I'm curious, in, in a world that is so quick to once someone's late, we move on, cancel them out. And hey, I was there for him. He wasn't there for me. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Why are you the kind of guy that sticks around for a kid that can't give you anything in return? Yeah, because I was that kid. I was that kid who needed to be seen, uh, who needed uh, to be heard, even if he didn't have the language and the vocabulary uh, to express that. And in many ways, I, I, I think showing up, at least I'd like to think showing up the way that I do is I'm, maybe I'm still trying to help a younger version of myself, John. Maybe that's what it comes down to. Uh, that um, we all have moments uh, in our, all of us do, all of us do, uh, where we weren't fully seen or we needed, we needed understanding, we needed patience, we needed a second chance, we needed perspective. And in those specific moments, I am mindful of those things that I needed and now I can be that for someone else. Uh, and you, you're in for some surprises along the way when that happens. Uh, you know, a few years ago, a young man, fifth grader from Massachusetts, I live in Illinois, Massachusetts, he wrote to me uh, because his babysitter had recommended my book. He read it, did a book report on it, got a great grade, and then he went online and found me and then wrote me. And, you know, you haven't really arrived in the world until a fifth grader writes to you. That's when you've arrived. That's when you're finally cool. And, but I, I remember reading young Julian's letter and saying, treat this differently. And that to me meant, well, I had a favorite author in the fifth grade. It was Richard Adams, the author of Watership Down. And so my mind starts percolating. Julian says, he's telling me, hey, you're my favorite author. And I was thinking, well, what would I have done had Richard Adams, my favorite author, just showed up at my elementary school to surprise me? I mean, it would have blown my mind. So I'm thinking, that's what I'm going to go do. I call uh, the school, speak to his teacher tell him what my plan is. My plan is I want to surprise Julian. And uh, the teacher says, that's great. And as teachers, as you well know, you, you know, when it comes to children, you give a teacher an inch and they're going to take a mile because uh, it's a, what, what his teacher does is say, Hey, well, rather than talking to his class, let's talk to the entire school. Yep. And she says, I have to go get permission from the principal. She meets with the principal. The principal says, no, it's late in the year. I don't know this man. I've never heard of this man. And the teacher says, well, I'm going to bring you his book. Read it over the weekend. You know, let me know what you think, if that changes your mind. 
They meet the next day, just walked into her office, handed her the book, walked out. She's barely through the doorway before the principal says, well, how soon can he come here? The teacher's really taken aback by that. And said, you said no. And she points at the, at, at the book and says, well, don't you want to read that? And magically, the principal holds it up and says, well, I'm sure I'm going to learn a few things about him. But a lot of his story, I already know, because I was that man's second grade teacher 40 years ago. When Julian was writing to me, he hmm. did not know, nor did I know in responding to him that his principal was once my second grade teacher, Rose Bowman. Uh, who is still the principal at Old Hammond Town School. So here I am thinking that I'm doing something for young Julian and young Julian was doing something for me. So it, it, it's a made up story audience until you actually see the photographic evidence of it. And I have seen the photographic evidence of these teachers with their arms around Steve and little yeah. Julian were there in the, in, in the middle of it all. It's an unbelievable reminder. It's a miraculous, it's a small miracle, but it's a miraculous reminder that we are all in this interconnected, wildly unified world. And we act like we need to do it all by ourselves or build taller walls. But the reality is we just kind of let go of the reins and, and say yes to opportunity. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely true. And you need not, you need not have a reward. That's one of the, the lessons of the lighthouse. You can't pay a lighthouse for what it does. You can't. Uh, and there are things that we do for, for which we need no, no reward. It doesn't need to have a specific outcome. Yeah. Uh, and yet there is always an outcome. And usually it's a very special one. One Greek proverb says that a society grows great when the elders of that society plant trees in whose shade they know they will never sit. And when you bestow a kindness or a goodness upon someone, you don't really know the full effect and impact that it, that it has. But it means something in the moment though. And we never know the kind of waterfall effect that that has. Uh, on others, be those who receive kindness and recognition and goodness and how likely they are, you know, to bestow that upon someone else. We, we want to transform a society and change a society. It is the small things that happen amongst the seemingly ordinary people uh, that change it all. Steve, I uh, have so enjoyed our conversation and I, I wrap up every conversation with guests that I have had on the show with seven questions that tether all of them together. I'm really excited actually for your first answer to the first question because you are a voracious reader. So Steve, the first question is, what is the most influential book that you have ever read? Watership Down by Richard Adams. I don't know it, man. Tell me about it. You know, it, it was actually probably like the Harry Potter of, it, of, its, of its time, about a band of rabbits uh, who have been taken from uh, or disrupted from their home. They're kicking and clawing and scratching and fighting. Uh, trying to find their way home, uh, trying to find a new home. And that spoke to me because that's what I was in, kind of this mystery, right? And so the characters in Watership Down, Fiverr, and Blackberry, and uh, Bigwig, who was the nemesis, uh, you know, those, those were my friends, you know, and I gravitated, uh, you know, to them. There's a particular line that Adam said about fighting. Uh, he's describing these rabbits. And he says, so why do they fight? You know, they're small, they're outmatched, they're undersized. And he says, they fight because for them, it's safer to fight than to run. And as far as I was concerned, he had written that just for me. Uh, I liked Lord of the Rings by Tolkien was another. You know, asking somebody who loves books what his favorite one, I could go on for quite a while. But yeah, Richard Adams' Watership Down. 
Well, it's, unf- it's like me now making you decide which of the three kids is your favorite. I won't do it right now. We'll save that for our second conversation. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as, as a little boy? Maybe that little boy in that picture when you were seven years old that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think the sense of wonder mm. that I had as a young boy, which really was my armor. Wonder is a kind of armor, especially for children in adverse circumstances. As life uh, moves forward, we have responsibilities. But that, that's, that sense of wonder was so uh, important to me, even especially when I look back on it and the things that I did as a result of that sense of wonder. Boy, you know, you want to go back uh, to, to those days. We see them in our children, though. So that's a, it brings us back just a little bit. And, and God willing, maybe in a few years, you'll see them in your grandbabies. For sure. Uh, as a Boston Fenway fan, uh, the third question is, if your home caught fire, and all your baseball cards, all your Boston Red Sox banners, everything else like that is out. Your kids are out. Your wife is out. Your animals are out. And you have an opportunity to run into this burning house and save just one thing, one item. Mm. What would you come back outside with? I would come back outside with an interview, actually, of uh, my father. Uh, He was one of the top uh, amateur fighters in the world. And in 1970, before he was headed to national AAU tournament, he was interviewed by a local television station. And it is the only uh, video actually that exists of him. So I get to see how he moved and how he spoke and things that no picture could ever tell you. Having, you know, that as much for my own children, uh, I, I think, you know, that sense of history and continuity. I don't have that of my mother, unfortunately, but I would have that of him. So, yeah, I, I think uh, that, that that'd be what I would go get. When you hear his voice and you see his face and you watch his movements, do you see a little bit of you in him? Oh, I absolutely do. And I see my children, too. Different mannerisms and those kinds of things. You know, it's, it's nostalgic, of course, because I never knew him. I never met him. You know, seeing it, ah, so that's that's where I, I come from. You know, that's that's the origins of my own kind of kind of story. Still a void there, in all honesty, John. You know, I'm, I belong to that rare fraternity of, of, of kids who have had to walk through the world parentless. I, I see, though, in my children and in my relationship with them, you know, part of me lives uh, you know, uh, as a as a young boy, not not, not through them because they have their own lives to live, uh, but I kind of see the relationship that we have. I'm thinking, ah, so it, you know, that's how it that's what it must feel like. Beautiful answer, thank you for it. And you're you're just so authentic and real. It's it's uh, refreshing. The next question is this, Steve: If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or past, who would you want to be seated right next to? Well, I mean, I think that one of the typical answers you, you, you get is uh, your faith expression, right? You want to sit with Jesus. And, but I'll, I'll choose something different, and it would, it would be my mother, actually. I would love to kind of sit beside uh, her, and in part to probably just my, even before I would speak a word uh, to her, she would, in seeing me, would get the answer to the question, I think, that kind of haunted her, which is, did I blow it? Did I blow this life that I had because I was I had a mental health challenge and I was battling alcoholism and, uh, you know, wondering I I didn't get it right. But I think as soon as she saw me, she would go, no, I actually no, I I got it right. I got it right. Uh, And um, uh, and I would ask her, you know, uh, why'd you name me Steve? And is 
my middle name that is Joseph, was that after your dad? Uh, uh, you know, all those kind of things that narratives that you kind of grow up hearing that I'm denied. I don't get the answers, you know, to 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 those things. Uh, and and I think, um, you know, in a way, just um, letting her know, as I always did want to let her know, you know, mom, your life did have meaning. It did have value. And the reason you know that is because I'm here and your grandchildren are here. Amen. That's how you know. Thank you. What What's the best advice that you've ever received? Probably from John. John always talked about character. Be 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 a man of uh, of good character. He always emphasized that. He let me know that I had a lot of it, um, I, although I never knew what he was quite talking about. Uh, but he 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 never used the words like kind of be a good man. But that's what he kind of meant. Be moral uh, in your decision making. Do the right thing. And uh, it, it kind of guides, still, you know, uh, guides me. It was also, I think, one of the ways why I was ultimately able to put the anger aside, you know, because of that counsel and that, uh, you know, advice. Ruby Dotton, who was the director of the Upward Bound Pro Program, she was pretty important too. Uh, you know, something she said to me <laughs> one time when I was being belligerent about something, and I was actually technically right about it, but it was the way I was saying it, you know. So, John, she pulled me aside and, she kind of slid her glasses down her nose and she said, Steve, whenever she paused like that and said your name, you knew like some wisdom was coming your way. <laughs> and uh, she said, Steve, uh, you can be 100% correct in something you're saying and 100% incorrect in the way that you are saying it. Uh, to which I replied, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I, I need Ruby to come over for dinner tonight and to whisper that same encouragement into the four O'Leary kids' ears right at this very moment. You can be 100% right in, the, in what you're saying and wrong. In the <laughs> and, and what's more, uh, the wrongness with which you're saying it means they never get to how right you are. <laughs> Well, and we need to hear that politically and racially and in our neighborhood conversations and in churches and synagogues and schools right now, because you can be right about something and it will not be heard if we don't meet others first and foremost, foremost with where they are. So there are two questions left, Steve, for you. The first is this, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? If you could go back in time and just whisper a little bit of encouragement or wisdom into your ears, what would you say? Yeah, certainly the, you know, the man that I am wishes I could go back and talk to the young boy that I was. Uh, less about advice, actually, but more about affirmation, because I, I know the dreams and the wishes of that 20-year-old version of me. So I wouldn't advise him, because to be honest, John, the 20-year-old version of me was hard to advise. <laughs> Hard to tell that kid anything, uh, but I would I would tell him that a lot of his instincts about family, about new beginnings, about hope, about dreams, he's actually a thousand percent correct about them because that's true. You know, it, it, it is absolutely uh, true. You know, I think visiting that younger version of ourselves isn't always about giving him or her advice. Maybe it's just affirming some of the deepest wishes and desires that they have and encouraging them to chase them with all that they are. Come on, man. I wish we could drop the mic on that one. Sadly, tragically, we have one more question to follow. But, but that's just sage wisdom right there. So yes, thank you for sharing it. The final question. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Steve Pemberton, how would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, it actually comes from uh, poetry and uh, Edith Hamilton, who was writing 
poet Aeschylus and, and, and says, he was the first Steve and the Emerson, last, how would you- uh, the born fighter, to whom uh, the challenge of being up against an adversary suffices. We, we are not made for safe havens. Uh, and that there is that in us which can turn defeat into victory. Steve, you are a lighthouse. You are a man, a servant, a leader who has been able time and time again to turn defeat into victory. And you've done a phenomenal job in your work and in your words in reminding the rest of us that the same is true in our lives too. In particular, when it's not only for our own victory of success, but for the ultimate victory of significance, a life that elevates and impacts the lives of those of those around us. You do it well, man. So I really thank you for your leadership and your life story and for spending part of your day with us. And I thank you as well for your journey. We've not physically uh, met, but as I uh, learned about you, as much as you learned about, about me, I just thought I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a brother. Uh, you know, there's people that we meet who you don't know, you've not met before, but you say, oh yes, we, we were on parallel paths. I mean, uh, your, your, your courage, your story, your, the lighthouses that you've made part of your story. Uh, it is immeasurable, uh, John, uh, the, the courage uh, that you've summoned and how you've decided to direct that towards others, to inspiring and impacting others. You will not see in your lifetime, because none of us can, uh, the full impact of, of, of that. But uh, 30, 35 years from now, there's going to be somebody conducting a podcast or some other version of it. And they're going to say, somebody's going to ask them too, some of the questions you've been asking me. And they're going to say, you know, man, it, it was that book by John O'Leary. That's the one that set me differently. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that I expressed uh, that uh, to you. I am very, very hopeful that as society opens back up, that I will find myself either in St. Louis or you will find yourself in, in Chicago and that you and I will go catch our favorite pastime uh, <laughs> at, at, at Wrigley or, or uh, the Cardinals. Uh, is it still Bush Stadium? Uh, listen, I'm going to have you down for a game at Bush Stadium. But uh, listen, you care deeply about our youth. You care deeply about our society and you care deeply about utilizing the talents that God has given you, whatever those talents have been, in a way that elevates the lives of those we come into contact with. It's so encouraging. It's so inspiring. And I can't wait to share uh, an order of nachos with you at Wrigley Field, talk baseball, talk faith, talk life, and talk about how we can do a few more things together. For sure. For sure, John. I appreciate you. All right, Steve. Talk to you soon, man. God bless you. That is Steve Pemberton. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach, we're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.